0: sticking out too much, but those growing up now are proud to announce their roots in Vietnam as well as their Taiwanese identity. All these changes, together with growing access to the internet and the arrival of smartphones, meant that 4 way voice suddenly wasn't quite so relevant anymore.
1: <laughs>
0: if you look for it, it still exists today in an online version, mostly just carrying news. But Ms. Mwing says that after a run of around a decade, the paper itself was no longer published. The so-called wartime she describes was over, and she moved on with her life. The scale remains small, and problems do still exist, especially those surrounding migrant workers. But slowly, it seems, Taiwan is transforming itself into the sort of place where people come in search of a better life. I'm Curious John, and I'll see you again next week.
2: This is Radio Taiwan International. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Shirley Lin with In the Spotlight.
3: Welcome to In the Spotlight. I'm Sherry Lin. And with me in the studio today is Lydia Chang, who is the founder of Origin Yoga and Wellness. And uh, it's actually Taipei's first yoga retreat center. And I'm going to have her explain what that means. Um, She left Taiwan when she was a fifth grader and then emigrated to Canada with her family. And she was there for 20 years. And then um, she used to be an accountant. But the thing is that I think one time she was visiting Taiwan and then, anyway, something made her decide to stay. And so she's been back in Taiwan for three and a half years. Anyway, let's meet Lydia. Hi, Lydia.
4: Hello, Shirley.
3: Yes, good to have you. All right, so let's just start right off. I mean, what exactly is a yoga retreat center? I mean, we've got a lot of yoga centers here in Taiwan, but you must stand out to be something different. But what does that mean?
4: A yoga retreat is an all-inclusive you can think of it like an all-inclusive wellness vacation. So not only you're here for the yoga, uh, you're also here for a yoga lifestyle experience. So that means not only we're doing yoga, we're doing meditation, we are eating healthy, organic food, and we are also practicing uh, mindfulness in okay. all the activities that we do, including uh, spending time in nature. So sometimes we would take our guests out to the ocean, which we're very lucky. We're surrounded by beautiful ocean and beaches. Um, sometimes we go hiking. And also part of yoga retreat is connection helping people connect with the local culture. So we also have curated experiences where uh, visitors can come and connect with the locals here, learn about their story, and in the meantime, also get a chance to experience themselves. This sounds like everything. <laughs> yes, it <laughs> everything
3: is. Everything that's good, that's it, it's all included in this.
4: This is amazing. Well, okay, how did you have this idea? I mean, what happened? Uh, wellness, vacation, and yoga retreats is actually quite popular all around the world. Definitely in, in East Asia, um, the concept is quite not there yet, but in North America is very popular, oh. and in Europe and um, South Asia as well, very popular. There's probably about more than 5,000 yoga retreat centers around the world, but... Oh. I guess only one in Taiwan. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Why why did
3: you decide to do this? I mean, you were in Canada. You were just having a good life and and being, you know, comfortable as an accountant and making good money, I'm sure. And it could have well just, you know, made your living there and everything. But then...
4: Actually, my my parents, well, my dad and my brother has always been in Taiwan. Only my mom and I moved to Canada because my parents separated. Oh, I see. So that's sort of our story. Uh Um, So I left, like you mentioned, when I was about in grade five. And um, and I spent most of my life in Canada. And I was very happy as an accountant, like you said. It It was good money. It was a good job, and I had a very good life. But yoga has always been a part of my life since I was a child. Uh, So I mentioned my my parents, uh, but my first yoga teacher is actually my father. Oh, (laughs) this is getting interesting. Okay. So he, and currently he's our Zim master at the Yoga Retreat Center. So he he taught me yoga and meditation probably starting at the age of 10. Uh, So that has planted a seed in me since I was very young. Um, And I didn't, for myself, didn't really get back into yoga or seriously consider yoga as a path in my life um, until probably during the time when I was studying and becoming an accountant. So I was trying to uh, pass my CPA CA exam um, and I was very stressed out. (laughs) So I remember my dad's teaching like, oh, you should practice meditation when you're stressed or you should focus on your breath when you're feeling stressed out. So that's when I picked up yoga again. So a chance encounter is probably around 2014. Uh, My dad actually wanted to go to India to take a course and he needed a translator so I decided to go with him Ah, (laughs) (laughs) and that's how I became a yoga teacher got certified in India
3: so you were there not just for a day or two you were there for quite a period of time for you to get a certificate
4: Yes, I was there for about three months. I see. Oh,
3: okay. But you had an accountant job at the time. I did. So you (laughs) quit? No,
4: not quite. So (laughs) this is how I went with my job. I basically promised work that after I go to India and come back with a teacher certificate, I can now offer yoga classes for the company. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Exactly. And that's what happened. So after I became a yoga teacher or a certified, I returned back to my corporate job and I started teaching yoga at work. And more and more, it became a very popular program. Uh, and I started doing not just physical yoga, but also mindfulness training for some of the leaders at work. And we even have weekly meditation sessions where we did it over Skype and we had you know people from the factories or, you know, people on the road that would Skype in just to meditate together. Really? Wow, that's amazing People would
3: even go to that extent To be in a class
4: I had a very good company To be honest I was very supportive uh, of, of this program Yeah Alright, so your dad Has always
3: been a yoga teacher Ever since he was Maybe ever since he was young
4: My dad also had a Kind of a transformative experience He uh, He's always been in Taiwan But he used to be um, In finance as well He used to be a stockbroker <laughs> <laughs> This is so interesting Okay And and uh, so I think the stress of being a stockbroker and the ups and downs of life, really, that's what got him into starting to learn yoga and meditation. Well, he didn't know
3: any yoga then, though, until he got stressed. And then he went looking around what you should do about it. And then he thought, oh, why not try yoga, right? Was that what, what happened?
4: When he told me that it was, you know, it was for especially at least for yoga, a lot of people get introduced to yoga from the physical aspect first. And then Mm -hmm. they become deeper involved or more interested in the spiritual side. So same thing with him. In the beginning, um, he told me he was just eating lunch at a cafe and he saw a poster for a yoga class.
3: Oh, that was it? That was it. He decided to
4: go for it. (laughs) How old were you when you started
3: learning yoga? You just liked it from the start.
4: No, I didn't. (laughs) It was... (laughs) I did not like yoga from the start, especially when I was 10 years old, right? You know, and back then, you have to think about this. This is maybe 20, 30 years ago. So back then, it was not very popular. Yoga now is trendy. It's cool. Everyone's doing it. Everyone know what it is. And there's many, many good classes and good teachers. But back then, especially in Taiwan, yoga is not common at all. Yeah, So not at all. Exactly. And so when I went to class with my dad, for example, it was just full of old people. <laughs> it was not something I would enjoy doing. It just thought it was really boring. The classes were super long, two, three hours minimal. I'm curious, how about your mom? I mean, did she like yoga? My mom, uh, she does like yoga. She doesn't practice it religiously like, like, my, like my dad, dad. does. Um, she is more involved in the, more, uh, the meditation, the spiritual side of things. I see.
3: Yeah. Okay. Wow. Your whole family of yoga lovers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So anyway, you didn't like it at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that you know, that popular then. Mm-hmm. So, what was it? so was it a drag you know, going to these yoga classes with your dad then? He kind of had to drag you there. Yes. Yes,
4: no. I would say so. Uh, but he not he taught me not only just the physical yoga. He really emphasized also on meditation and okay. the mindfulness part and the values that comes with the yoga practice, such as looking within yourself, staying grounded no matter what, and taking time for self reflection and staying. You were only ten. I know. So <laughs> I didn't really didn't get it at the time. Like oh my god, so much lectures. <laughs> 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 okay. I know. I mean now. Now it's profound insight, but back then I didn't appreciate it. Mm. <laughs> it was not not a pleasant. <laughs>
3: <laughs> this is so funny. Mm-hmm. Oh well, how did how long did you persevere? I mean, I guess you didn't have a choice, right? You, you just had to. I mean, your dad didn't give you any choice. You just had to go. And then what happened? I mean, eventually
4: you start liking it, right? How? Why? Yes. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think back then, even though I didn't like it, I went along with it. And eventually it did make an impression on me. So I knew it was something valuable. I just didn't get it at the time. Uh-huh. And I picked how, it how up How did it again. make an impression on you? How? I think just because you're forced to, I was forced to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I was forced to wake up at five in the morning and go to the oh beach gosh, and like sit there. At five <laughs> in the morning, you know? Yeah. And watch the sunrise.
0: You're listening to In The Spotlight with Shirley Lin.
3: Okay, you just touched on a point here. You said the beach, you Mm -hmm. said the sunrise. Okay, apparently, what, three and a half years ago, you came back visiting um, Taiwan. And when you're talking about the beach and everything, because that's where your house used to be, the Mm -hmm. place where you used to, where you grew up. It's right by the beach. And you asked me if I know that place. By Sa Wan, you know, the White Sand Bay, whatever. Um, I know that place. I mean, I've always gone there for swimming with another family. And it's all great because it's not usually crowded. And that's why we like that beach, you know. But anyway, so you used to live there. Yeah. Yeah. And so, anyway, you went visiting... And actually, for 20 years, you were saying, no, you should tell the story.
4: <laughs> All right. So my because my dad was a teacher, I think he always preferred being outside of the city. He always oh. enjoyed being closer to nature. So at some point when he was visiting also Bai Shawan, and for those who are familiar with Taipei or have lived there for a while, you're right. It is probably the closest beach to Taipei. It's really mm. not that far. It's only within an hour drive. Oh, yeah. So he saw this beach big complex of abandoned building and oh. there's about 200 units and that building is actually quite iconic it's been around for about 50 years it used to be owned by a lot many of the wealthy uh, rich and famous people of taiwan it's their vacation home oh okay uh,
3: i didn't know okay
4: <laughs> Somehow it became abandoned, not overnight, but over time. Um, A lot of people, some people immigrated outside and maybe just the idea of a vacation home never caught on. So eventually all the units were abandoned. So when my dad got there, you know, the, the place is really run down. It still is run down today. Oh. It, it is still abandoned. Oh. <laughs> but um, he fell in love with it. You know, mm. he, he really saw it as a, as a perfect place for yoga and meditation, especially because it's right by the beach. The location is really amazing. You can see, you can get like a pan- panoramic view of the ocean oh, from the yeah. inside. He really saw that building as a reflection of, of what he's what he's teaching as well as learning about yoga and spirituality is the fact that it doesn't matter what, how it is on the outside, it could be very ugly or rustic, but it's that inward journey that matters, going inside and working on yourself so you can glow from within, uh, that, that's what matters most. So he saw that building as very symbolic, and eventually he decided to uproot my whole family and move to the beach. <laughs> oh, you guys were living in the city then? Yes. before
3: prior to that oh I see yes I see I see okay so now that place is your yoga retreat center
4: how big is it so there's four floors and we've got our di- a dining space a oh. yoga space and then we've got enough sounds room. really big it's quite big uh-huh. enough room for about um, comfortably we can fit a group of maybe 14 people Lily, you're actually a tiny woman to me
3: I don't know. And to think that actually you're doing such a great thing, being a founder of this whole you know, yoga retreat center, it, it really impresses me. Would you call yourself a, a real like, ambitious entrepreneur?
4: Yes, I, was, I would say so. I've, I've always been ambitious in my corporate life.
3: I can't picture you as a businesswoman. i picture you more as just like a really calm, refreshing kind of yoga teacher.
4: I actually like to call myself a spiritual entrepreneur. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay, that's fitting. That's fitting. Yeah, that's
3: what I'm picturing Lydia right now in front of me. And you started this yoga retreat center and it's been three and a half years. How does the word get around? I mean, is it mostly women who are taking classes from you? But it's not off limits to men,
4: is it? No, no, no. Uh, to be honest, and when I first started, because we are the first yoga retreat center in Taiwan, I didn't really have a clear TA, target audience. I just wanted to open up to everyone and see who comes. And eventually, it became very clear that, well, number one, yes, you're right, mostly women that, that are attractive. A lot of them are traveling uh, solo. And some are from Taipei, some are from the expat community in Taipei, um, and many actually are from outside of Taiwan. So I would say close to 70% of our guests right now come from outside of Taiwan. So what do you mean? They traveled,
3: they actually flew into Taiwan to come and stay at the retreat center for how how, how many days at at a time or how many weeks at a time? I don't know.
4: Yes, so these guests would fly in. Our shortest program is one day, so from 9 to 5.30. Our longest is six days. So these women or guests, not just women, there's more and more men now, but initially yeah. there was mostly women. Uh, but these guests would fly in from the major cities around Taiwan, such as Hong Kong, Shanghai, Singapore, Malaysia, Like those places, th- those are probably accounting for 50% of our guests. And then the rest of the 30% are uh, tourists or Uh, people also from Europe, North America, Australia. We have guests from probably more than 40 different countries.
3: Definitely tune in next week to hear more from Lydia Chang and this first yoga retreat center in Taiwan. For In the Spotlight, I'm Shirley Lin.
2: Shorts: Stories from Chinese History and Literature
5: Hello and welcome to Classic Shorts, I'm Natalie Sow. The oldest Chinese-known poems are from the 5th to 7th century BC and are carved on ten granite boulders that have been called stone drums because they're shaped like a drum. The poems were discovered over a thousand years later in the Tang Dynasty, And poets and calligraphists were ecstatic about them. Today we hear what the Shakespeare of China Han Yu had to say about them. But let's first hear one of the poems inscribed on the drums. My chariots were complete, my horses were harnessed, my chariots were gaily decorated, my horses were thriving. The officials gathered in force, the banners waved in the wind. Deer left footprints behind, by which we pursued. Bows were drawn, arrows were at the string. I ran into a royal stag, which galloping, clip clock. He charged at me, raising quite a dust. The herd rushed off, running out of sight. I chased a lone buck, but he too escaped. Finally, I shot a sorrel. The poems on the drums commemorate the hunting and fishing activities of the Duke of Qing, now let's take a look at the sentiments of Tang Dynasty poet Han Yu in his work A Poem on the Stone Drums. Han handed me this tracing from the stone drums, beseeching me to write a poem on the stone drums. Du Fu has gone, Li Bai is dead. What can my poor talent do for the stone drums? When the Zhou power waned and China was bubbling, Emperor Xuan, up in wrath, waved his holy spear and opened his great audience, receiving all the tributes of kings and lords who came to him with a tune of clanging weapons. They held a hunt in Qiang and proved their marksmanship. Fallen birds and animals were strewn 3,000 miles, and the exploit was recorded to inform new generations cut out of jutting cliffs these drums made of stone on which poets and artisans all of the first order had indicted and chiseled were set in the deep mountains to be washed by rain baked by sun and burned by wildfire eyed by evil spirits and protected by the gods where can he have found the tracing on this paper True to the original, not altered by a hair. The meaning deep, the phrases cryptic, difficult to read, and the style of the characters neither square nor tadpole. Time has not yet vanquished the beauty of these letters. Looking like sharp daggers that pierce live crocodiles, like phoenix mates dancing, like angels hovering down. Like trees of jade and coral with interlocking branches. Like golden cord and iron chain tied together tight. Like incense tripods flung in the sea. Like dragons mounting heaven. Historians gathering ancient poems forgot to gather these. To make the two books of musical song more colorful and striking. Confucius journeyed in the west, but not to the Qing kingdom. He chose our planet and our stars, but missed the sun and the moon. I, who am fond of antiquity, was born too late. And thinking of these wonderful things cannot hold back my tears. I remember when I was awarded my highest degree. During the first year of Yuanhe, how a friend of mine, then at the Western camp, offered to assist me in removing these old relics. I bathed and changed, then made my plea to the college president, and urged on him the rareness of these most precious things. They could be wrapped in rugs, be packed and sent in boxes, and carried on only a few camels. Ten stone drums, to grace the imperial temple like the incense pot of Gaul. Or their luster and their value would increase a hundredfold if the monarch would present them to the university, where students could study them and doubtless decipher them. And multitudes attracted to the capital of culture, prom all corners of the empire would be quick to gather. We would scour the moss, pick out the dirt, restore the original surface, and lodge them in a fitting and secure place Forever covered by a massive building with wide eaves where nothing more might happen to them as it had before. But government officials grow fixed in their ways and never will initiate beyond old precedent. So herd boys strike the jumps for fire, cows polish horns on them, with no one to handle them reverentially. Still aging and decaying, soon they may be effaced. Six years I have signed for them, chanting toward the West... The familiar script of Wang Xizhi, beautiful though it was, could be had several pages just for a few white geese. But now, eight dynasties after the Zhou, and all the war's over, why should there be nobody caring for these drums? The empire is at peace, the government free. Poets again are honored and Confucius in mentions. Oh, how may this petition be carried to the throne. It needs indeed an eloquent flow like a cataract. But alas, my voice has broken in my song of the stone drums to a sound of supplication choked with its own tears. That is Han Yu and his sentiments on the ten stone drums which have engraved on them the most ancient poems in China. They can be seen at the Palace Museum in Beijing. Thanks for tuning in to Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie So.
2: Listening to news playlist. We've queued up some of the most interesting reports for you brought to you by Radio Taiwan International.
1: Welcome to News Playlist. I'm Paula Chow, the program host. Today we are going to feature videos about late President Chiang Kai-shek. Now Taipei's controversial Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall is known for regular changing of the guard ceremonies and a museum dedicated to Jiang's life. But last December, a new commission was looking to remove reminders of Jiang's authoritarian rule and the political suppression he brought to Taiwan.
2: The Transitional Justice Commission on Monday made recommendations for removing authoritarian symbols from the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall. Acting Chairperson Yang Sui said the hall is a symbol of the totalitarian regime. She suggested changing the spatial language seen in features like the imperial palace and royal mausoleum designs. She said it was possible to rewrite the meaning behind the authoritarian symbols rather than leveling the monument to the ground. Transitional measures could include replacing the exhibits within the Memorial Hall and eliminating the changing of the guards. She said those are just suggestions, though, and that the details would have to be discussed with the Ministry of Culture. We are suggesting provisions that would immediately respond to the needs of transitional justice, she said. For example, the Commission will discuss the possibility of eliminating the changing of the guard ceremonies by the honor guards and whether there should be changes to the the pamphlets and the displays at the memorial and discuss the possibility of creating long-term exhibits related to democracy and human rights. The commission is also addressing authoritarian symbols in Taiwan's currency. Right now, the only coins that contain the likeness of Chiang Kai-shek are the 1, 5, and the old version of the $10 coins, as well as the 200 NT dollar bill. The commission has asked the central bank to explain an earlier estimate that said the changes would cost 50 billion Taiwan dollars. That's 1.6 billion U.S. dollars. Yang said that the commission would conduct further research and hold negotiations to decide if and how changes should be made to the currency. Andrew Ryan, RTI News.
1: In April this year, the government said that the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall will not be demolished despite proposals from the culture ministry. But the fate of the more than 1,000 Chiang Kai-shek statues around Taiwan is still up in the air.
0: It's the changing of the guards at the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall, and tourists are straining to get a shot. But could plans to transform the building change that? The cabinet says the hall will remain intact, but the future of Jiang's statue is not so certain. NTNU professor Fan Ping says he supports the decision But he hopes to see a more balanced perspective in the hall's exhibits To teach about Taiwan's democracy Right now, there are 1,083 statues of Jiang in Taiwan With the largest number located in the capital city, Taipei That's followed by Taichung in central Taiwan and Kaohsiung in the south And as for which government agencies have the most statues, the defense ministry comes in first, followed by the education ministry and the Veteran Affairs Council. While some say the statues should be removed because they are a symbol of Taiwan's authoritarian past, not everyone is so sure. NDHU professor Shi Zhengfeng says he believes the current administration is trying to push its own agenda. He says he hopes the officials can find a nonpartisan way to handle the issue without using it to sway voters in the upcoming presidential election.
1: Earlier this year, President Tsai Ing-wen and former President Ma Ying-jio both attended an event marking the 72nd anniversary of the eight incident. The eight incident refers to the events of February 28, 1947. Prior to 1945, Taiwan had been a Japanese colony for 50 years. After Japan's defeat in World War II, control of Taiwan was handed to the Republic of China. But tensions between locals and the new government flared up after 50 years of separation from Chinese rule. The 228 incident itself started on February 27, 1947, when the Tobacco Monopoly Bureau sent agents to confiscate illegal cigarettes from a street vendor. A conflict erupted in which one citizen was killed by a gunshot. This initial confrontation then escalated into a full-scale uprising against the government. The military put down the uprising with an iron fist. It is impossible to know how many people died as a result of the mobilization, but the academics put the figure as somewhere between 10,000 and 30,000 people. Martial law was declared and remained in place for 40 years. The period of political repression under the Kuomintang's one party state would come to be known as the White Tarot. Today, February 28, is a national holiday in Taiwan. It is called Peace Memorial Day.
5: President Taiwan sings along with a hymn at a service at the Iguang Church. The gathering is to mark the 39th anniversary of the Lin family massacre, in which democracy activist Ling Yingzhong's mother and twin daughters were murdered in their home. Tsai expresses her condolences to Lin and his wife. Legislature President Su Jia Chen and Presidential Office Secretary General Chen Ji also attended the service. Tsai also spoke about the importance of transitional justice on this day. Former President Ma Ying-jeou paid his respects to victims at the 228 Peace Memorial Park. He says his heart is heavy and hopes that people can face history at face value. He said it's important to have empathy for those on the other side of history and to show respect and tolerance. Ma calls on people not to resort to violence or vandalism, like defacing statues of Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang's regime is seen by many as the cause behind the 228 incident. Ma on Thursday also visited a temple to pray for the nation. Both the former and current presidents working through the holiday to heal the nation's wounds on February 28th. Natalie So, RTI News.
2: This is News Playlist, a weekly rundown of some of the most interesting news reports brought to you by RTI. Watch along on YouTube if you like, or close your eyes and enjoy these stories by way of sound.
1: And in our show, Taiwan by Number, we find out more about the late president.
2: For some people, October 31st is Halloween. But for others, it's the birthday of Chiang Kai-shek, a former president of the Republic of China, which is the official name of Taiwan's government. Now, we don't celebrate his birthday anymore in Taiwan. It's not a holiday. Uh, and that's because he's a very controversial figure. But we're going to be talking a little bit more about that later. First. A question about a number related to Chiang kai-shek are you ready all right okay so how many years was president cheng kai-shek the president of the republic of oh, china
6: i'm no. gonna say 41.
2: 41 okay oh, i was a gonna good say guess.
5: something like that 40 then 40 mm-hmm.
2: are you sure yeah <laughs> all right let's have a look at the answer
5: i'm 27 that's it what?
2: <laughs> <laughs> all right so <laughs> should I, I should explain this uh he served Uh, Five, almost five, six-year terms, starting in 1948 and ending with his death in 1975. However... You are both very close from another respect. It's said that he was the leader of the Republic of China for 46 years.
5: Uh, that's what I was thinking, like yeah. starting in the mm. 20s or something.
2: That's correct. 1928, he served that's in a number thought. of capacities. So you're both very close. I think I'll give it to you for this <laughs> one. <laughs> I like that. All right, we're going to stay at the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial for this next question. Now, you've both seen the front of the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial. It has these marble steps that go up the front, right? Yeah, beautiful. Mm. Beautiful marble steps. Now, the total number of marble steps up the front and then steps into the main hall is the same as the number of his age when he died the question is how many steps are up the front of the Chiang Kai-shek memorial Leslie you look I like think you know I know answer. this one. Um, yep.
6: Oh no I'm okay so it's either 87 or 89 pick one 87 Nally Is
5: that old? I didn't know that (laughs) 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 Okay, then I'll pick 86
2: 86 Okay, let's have a look at the answer (laughs) All right Oh, Leslie, so close Almost,
5: almost almost.
2: On the tip of your tongue All right Almost got it That was very good
1: And
5: that's all we have for
1: this week's edition of News Playlist I'm Paula Chow See you next week Bye-bye
7: Listening. You are You're listening. Listening. You're
1: You're listening. listening to Radio Taiwan International
6: from Taipei, Taiwan.
7: Each time I'm amazed more and more by what I find in terms of the thriving economy. Uh, people are pretty optimistic. Uh, you have done extremely well in areas which are familiar to Israel. Science, technology, industry, uh, high-tech...
6: Hello and welcome to this week's On The Line brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. Professor Marin Mazzini was born in Jerusalem, Israel, and he studied in the U.S. and holds a B.A. degree from the College of the City of New York, M.A. from Georgetown University and Ph.D. from Harvard University, where he majored in the history of modern China and Japan. Professor Marin Mazzini has visited Taiwan several times since 1970s and is working on a book in Hebrew, on the history and politics of Taiwan. <music> Professor Marin Mazzini, you have been to Taiwan several times since 1970, and you have been interested in politics in Asia, particularly Taiwan. Tell us how you have witnessed uh, the difference in political sphere in Taiwan since your first visit in 1970.
7: I mean, the places. Changed enormously, and we're looking at almost half a century. When I came here the first time in 1970, this was a relatively backward country, not yet industrialized, uh, still in in not a good shape, and uh, the economy was uh, not uh, did not really fulfill its full potential. 1970 was still a year in which uh, Kemoy and Matsu were being shelled by the mainland, and there were rumblings about uh, how, how reliable were the Americans. Uh, since then, I have been here, I think, five or six times on various occasions, and I, each time I'm amazed more and more by what I find... In terms of this is a thriving economy, uh, people are pretty optimistic. Uh, you have done extremely well in areas which are familiar to Israel science, technology, industry, uh, high tech, basically using correctly your human potential, human capital. And uh, each time I go home and people say, Why do you keep going to Taiwan? I say, Because they remind me a bit of Israel. There are quite a few similarities. So uh, for me, coming to Taiwan is is really sort of a homecoming. And above all, I'm always keen to see what has changed, what has improved since the last time I was here.
6: You mentioned similarities. What kinds of similarities are there between Taiwan and Israel?
7: Oh, there are quite a few. First of all, in terms of size, uh, Taiwan is 36,000 square kilometers. We're, I think, about 28,000. Uh, your population is about 23 million. Ours is pushing 9 million. Uh, we're both at the edge of the Asian continent. We're Asia, but we're not really fully Asian. Uh, we, we have a similar problem uh, from our neighbors you are basically threatened by neighbor we are threatened by a series of neighbors there is always the american connection but above all there is the trust and belief in the human capacity to overcome all sorts of uh, adversary situations and above all to not to rely on others to rely on yourselves when it comes to developing uh, your country and therefore, both of us have done extremely well in fairly similar situations. I think you are now economy number 16 or 17 in the world. Uh, we are a bit behind, but there are many areas in which uh, we have uh, worked together, we've learned from each other, and above all, I think there is this belief in the human spirit, what the human spirit can achieve. Mm -hmm.
6: And how do you view the role of Taiwan in the Asia-Pacific region today?
7: Taiwan is a model. Uh, There are, at the moment, three working uh, parliamentary party democracies in uh, Asia. Japan, South Korea, there is uh, Taiwan. Israel is a role model in terms of a working democracy in the Middle East. Taiwan is a model how a country can pick itself up build its infrastructure, democratize itself, establish political parties, a working parliamentary democracy with elections, with free press, access to uh, the country. And uh, here, if small countries would like to see what a similar situation the country can do, I think uh, they should go to Taiwan. They can learn a great deal.
6: Mm -hmm. And you mentioned, of course, earlier that Taiwan and Israel share a lot of similarities. That's right. What's Israel's policy towards Asia and Taiwan?
7: Well, we don't have a policy towards Asia. We have policy towards various uh, parts of Asia. We, in fact, uh, ascribe to the idea of maintaining good relations with just about everybody, including uh, some countries in the region who, uh, that are Muslim and do not openly maintain uh, relations with Israel, such as Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, Pakistan. Uh, we have some sort of contacts with them. Uh, we've always had very good ties uh, with uh, so-called neutral countries Burma uh, Thailand Uh, with India and mainland China we established diplomatic relations only in 1992 took a very long time Uh, for a variety of reasons I don't think I'll go into that now we've had ties with Taiwan I think since around 1970 of uh, various sorts, and uh, our first embassy was opened in Japan at the end of 1952. So our relations with Asia go uh, a long way behind. See, there's something very important to mention to mention, especially in in Taiwan and also mainland China, the absence of anti-Semitism. There's one area in the world where you do not have anti-Semitism, and that is extremely important.
6: You're listening to Unaligned, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong, and today I'm speaking with Professor Maren Mazzini, who is an Associate Fellow at the Truman Peace Institute at the Hebrew University in Israel. And now you're engaged in writing the history and politics of Taiwan in Hebrew. In Hebrew. <laughs> Why right. Taiwan,
7: professor? Because uh, I discovered something very interesting. I've been teaching at the Hebrew University for almost half a century, and uh, there are quite a few books in Hebrew on history of China, in India, in Japan. There's even something on Southeast Asia. Apart from a travel book in Hebrew on Taiwan, zero, nada, nothing. And therefore, I thought the time had come to correct this. And uh, with the support of your representative office in Tel Aviv, we decided time has come to do something in Hebrew. And therefore, I'm now engaged in writing a, it's basically an introductory book aimed at the general reader, uh, high school students, uh, undergraduates. There will not be too many footnotes, it will not be a complicated thing, an attempt to explain to an interested, enlightened Israeli who the people are, what happened here in the island, uh, not only in the last uh, 70, 75 years, but also before that, and uh, why is this an interesting place to visit? So I hope that this will be out at the end of the year, and there will be a first book in Hebrew on Taiwan. Mm -hmm.
6: You are also, Professor, the author of six books and some 80 articles in academic publications in Israel and overseas. Are your publications related to politics?
7: Uh, Most of them have to do with Israeli foreign policy, which is a subject I taught for many years the relations between Israel and a number of Asian countries. I did a very interesting uh, article with two others uh, three, four years ago, which may interest uh, your audience. And that is, I looked at your cross-strait relations with the mainland and asked myself, can this serve as a model for Israeli-Palestinian relations? And I'm not sure about that, but at least this is something I toyed with. And uh, I'm still working, I'm still writing, although I'm fairly advanced age. Uh, The mind has to keep going. And uh, I have been dealing with Asia as a student and then as a teacher, I would say since about 1955. That's a hell of a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hope to carry on as long as I can.
6: Yes, and you also won the Israel Prime Minister's Prize for your biography of Golda, Golda Meir, right. and you were awarded the Order of the Rising Sun by the government of Japan. That's right. Why the government of Japan?
7: I have been. I was the first teacher of modern Japanese history at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem in 1964 which means uh, over uh, 50 years. And I taught this subject for many years, and uh, now former students of mine are carrying on. And therefore, the Japanese government came to the conclusion after decades of uh, teaching Japanese history, we want to recognize his contribution to the development of cultural relations between the two countries and therefore they decided to award me with this uh, very distinguished uh, medal uh, I think uh, the document is signed by the Prime Minister, maybe even by the Emperor, I'm not sure
6: mm-hmm. we know that the uh the media in each country plays a very important role Uh, how are the current government media relations in israel not good at all
7: (laughs) (laughs) very simple we're talking about a day after the uh, elections in israel whose outcome is uh, far from uh, certain Uh, the present government in fact look every government in Israel, be it labor, be it Likud, be it Ben-Gurion, uh, Golda Meir, Begin, Netanyahu, uh, they had their share of problems with the media. Uh, much dependent on the people around them, those who said to them, listen, this is the, that's the nature of the beast and you have to learn how to live with it. And those who feel that uh, the media is out to get them, uh, Netanyahu has been quite vocal in his opposition to uh, the media, which uh, I don't think is the right way to go about it, but he was not the first. Uh, previous prime ministers also were extremely unhappy uh, with the media. But that's the nature of, uh, of uh, politics and that's the nature of a working democracy. You've got to take the media as it is, and uh, on the contrary, I think you have to encourage. The media is a very important watchdog to make mm-hmm. sure that things are, are right.
6: So this is what Taiwan also can learn, uh, that the government should actually um, stay a closer, you know, stay close to the media as well.
7: The government should take note of the media. The government should uh, not ignore what the media is writing. Uh, the Government should i 'm not saying the Government should uh, produce policies in order to satisfy the media, not far from it. Government should lead, but uh, the Government should consider the media as a very important uh, watchdog like the Judiciary, uh, like the control mechanism uh, I think here you call it the examination you want. Mm-hmm a state controller in Israel, uh, police, uh, other uh, security services, to make sure that our democracy will not only survive, but will thrive and continue. That is extremely important.
6: Mm -hmm. and uh, we have been joined on the phone today by Professor Marin Mazzini Professor Marin Mazzini obtained his PhD from Harvard University majoring in the history of modern China and Japan and Professor Mazzini has been an associate fellow at the Truman Peace Institute at Hebrew University in Israel and that wraps up this week's On The Line brought to you by Radio Taiwan International I'm Carlson Wong thank you for listening the next week until then goodbye